We're in Judges chapter 6 to 8. And uh, I don't know. I think sometimes I'm known as a rebel. I think community Bible study sees me as a rebel. But um, I want to propose to you ladies today a paradox shift. And uh, to make sure we got the right definition, a paradox shift is an important change that happens when the usual way of thinking about or doing something is replaced by a new and different way. Okay? So what we're used to thinking about and doing whatever, we're going we're gonna to entertain the thought of looking at that differently. And what we're going to look at differently is Christianity. Bing, 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 I'm a rebel. The life of a Christian, what a Christian life, how we've been thinking about it, doing it, maybe our understanding, and maybe this won't be a shift for many of you, but it's certainly a shift, I believe, for a lot of people. And the shift is this. The Christian life is not what we get from God. We've already received everything we need in salvation, right? The Christian life is what we give to God. And that's going to be reflective in our prayer life. So as we go through here and look at Gideon, I want you to pay attention and notice how he changed, okay? Um, And how we can be uh, like a heads up that we don't want to kind of learn lessons from his life. So we begin chapter 6 of Judges with the the cycle starting over, right? They had peace for 40 years, and um, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, um, and he gave them over to the hands of the enemy for seven years, and they were horribly oppressed by them. I mean, it it was bad. It seems like each time they get, they fall, they get rescued, they repent, they come back, and they fall again. Each fall, it gets worse and worse for them. So the 40 years of rest has come to an end, and they've been oppressed for seven years by the Midianites. And the whole thing that God is allowing them to be oppressed is for them to turn back to him. He's not punishing them, but he's, he's, he's allowing almost pulling back his hands of mercy to allow evil. Because if he pulls back, if we take the spirit out of the world, like what's going to happen when the rapture happens, we don't get into all that. But if God's spirit, if his church leaves, all hell's going to break loose down here. There's nothing holding it back. So God just pulls back his hands a little bit and allows this oppressive stuff to happen so that they will turn back to him. He doesn't give up on them. He doesn't give up on us. He doesn't ignore us. He doesn't just sit here and go, okay, well, whatever. He's not, it's not that he's uninvolved. The whole goal is for them to realize, boy, this is really, you know, we just, life is, we've got to get back to God. It's also showing us the grace and mercy of, and long-suffering that God has. Because if he did leave them alone, they would be a lot worse off than they are at this point. And we would be too. So what's going on with them? In verses 2 to 6, it's not good. They're not even living in houses anymore. Where are they hanging out? In caves and dens like animals. They're hiding out. 
The Midianites have pushed them to the point where they're not even living like civilized people. All the hard work that they were due, um, the, the plowing, the harvesting, the planting of the crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites would come in with their, you know, trample the ground with their camels. They were nomads, so they just traveled around. You know, they would ruin their crops or take what they wanted and eat them. And, you know, they would leave them without anything. They left them with no substance, no sheep, no ox, no donkeys. They would just come, come in and, oh, man, I don't know, if you really think about that, if we work and there's no benefit for, to our labor, if there's no profit, if there's no reward, if it's just a constant grovel of hard work to the point where we're ready to harvest it and then someone steals it away, that is very, very discouraging and angry, and resentment, and it was just, they had nothing. They were basically planning and doing all this for the enemy to come in and take all this stuff away. So it wasn't a a good time. They were profitless. Their produce, livestock, stolen from them. And after years, after seven years of being dominated by this oppressive enemy, they finally cry out for help to the Lord. This is like us. We, you know, we skate along through life and it gets a little more difficult and we continue to do it in our own strength and it gets worse and worse. And it, it finally gets to a point where he says, hey, let's pray about it. When all along we should have been close to God, thanking him, communing with That's what he wants is to stay connected with him. So prayer is a constant thing. It's not a last resort. That's an immature way, immature Christianity when we use God like that. So they cry out to God. And in verse 7, the people of Israel cry out to the Lord on account of the Midianites. You notice that they didn't cry out to God just because God's a good God and we love God and he's giving us blessings. They cry out on account of the Midianites. And the Lord this time sends a prophet, and he hasn't done this before, but he sends a prophet. It's an unnamed prophet that comes. We can look at that and think maybe it was kind of a foreshadowing of John the Baptist, right? So he sends this unnamed prophet to remind them of a couple things, or or to get the people ready to be able to receive God coming and rescue them. And he's reminding them of basically three things. The first thing when he tells them that he led them up from Egypt and brought them out of the house of bondage and I, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the, all who oppressed you and I drove them out before you. Um, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you will dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Three things he's telling, reminding them about. One, he loves them. He loves them. It was me, he says, that rescued you, that did these things because I love you. And he's a powerful God. He did this in his power that he drove all these people out and all the things he did to get them out of Egypt and the amazing signs that he had. And so he loves them. He's powerful God. And the third thing is to remember that he's not the problem here. The problem is, and the problem is not the Midianites. The problem is them, with them, that they disobeyed. So the prophet comes through, and he shares all this stuff. 
And then we come in to verse 11, and we see Gideon is at work. And the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree. Terebinth is a tree that um, they would use for turpentine, and they would use it for tanning different things. And this was on, you know, Gideon's dad's property, and he's there. And this angel of the Lord, sometimes that phrase is just an angel creative being messenger. But in this instance, this is an actual, another appearance of Jesus, because it gets down to verse 14, and it says, and the Lord turned to him and said. So in this instance, it is Jesus himself who has, sitting under this tree, where Gideon is fast at work, and what kind of work is he doing? He's threshing wheat. Threshing wheat, you do it on a windy day, you go up to a hill or something where the breeze is coming in, you get these baskets, and you you got the wheat in there, you crush it first, and you got the wheat in there, and you throw it up in the air, and all the shaft blows away, and all the heavy seeds fall back down, and so you do that again to get the shaft off, and you have the seeds, the wheat seeds. But he is doing it in a wine press, which is a hole in the ground, where they would stomp on the grapes, he's down in a hole. No wind happening down in a hole. You go down in a hole when you want to get out of the wind, right? So here he is, he's down there, and why is he down there? He's hiding. He's hiding so that bad guys don't come and see what he's doing and and take his uh, weed away after he's done all that hard work. Um, He was just a simple, ordinary man at work. And the Lord comes to him and he says, O mighty man of valor. And he's probably looking over his shoulder like, who are you even talking about here? Are you talking to me? At this point, he doesn't recognize who he's talking to. It's just a a guy hanging out under a tree, calling him, hey, what a mighty man of valor you are. And Gideon says to him in verse 10, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? See, it's God's fault, right? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers had recounted to us? He heard of all the history that had happened, bringing them out of Egypt and all that kind of stuff. It was just refreshed in their minds anyways because the prophet had just reminded all of them about it. Where is God? What's going on with all this stuff? The Lord, sure, he was with us, but now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of the Midians. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And Gideon says to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, this is who Gideon is, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. So of all the clans... He's got the weakest one, the, the least important one, the insignificant one. And in that clan, Gideon's the least of that. And here he's being referred to as a mighty man of valor. And this, uh, at this point, he's just a man or this um, visitor, is telling him that he has in this might of yours. What kind of might was this? visitor noticing about Gideon. Well, 
humble, right? Hard worker, knew of God, had a faith in God, or had a knowledge about God and the things that he had done to his um, forefathers. So he had a belief system there. He had a burning in him to, uh, why is this still going on? Kind of an easy spirit about him that something needs to be done here. And God was going to take those things in him and pull this man up to be a a mighty warrior that he, in his strength, that he was going to use this, that he had. Remember, God doesn't see the same, the way man sees. And so... The least, the weakest, that's what scripture says God uses in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. This is Paul. My grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So, We're not going to go around bragging about, oh, I'm such a miserable person and I can't do anything. And, you know, we're not going to, you know, emphasize that. We're going to acknowledge it, though, because that's really who we are. We really are limited on what we can do. And and if we're honest with ourselves, all of us have bad motivations for things. All of us have get off track on stuff. All of us are self-centered. All of us mess up. Um... But acknowledging that, our weaknesses, then that's when God can come in and use us in a mighty way. Um, His power is made perfect in our weakness. Um, God would save Israel, not Gideon, but he would partner with Gideon with it. He partners with us. Emmanuel, God with us. He's He's equivalent to a savior. He's with us. Uh, Emmanuel, he comes and he partners with us and he works through us. So he's telling Gideon this, and he still doesn't know who this visitor is, um, but he basically says, you know, said to him in verse 17, so um, now if I have found favor in your eyes, obviously you like me, you're calling me this great warrior and stuff, you know, um, then show me a sign Show me a sign that it's you who will speak to me. Not sure yet if he even knows who it is. So he goes in, he prepares a meal and stuff, and he brings it out, his little present, and the visitor tells him to go ahead and lay it on a rock, take it out of the basket, lay it on a rock, and he takes his staff and he touches it, and the whole rock, from the rock, fire comes up and devours it, and the visitor disappears. At this moment, Gideon realizes who he was talking to. Um, That it was God himself. Why did he ask for a sign at this point? Probably because he didn't really think that he was capable or God cared enough to even want to, because it's been for so long that they've been oppressed, that God, it's almost like a helpless, is God really there? Gives him this sign, he reveals himself as God to him, and he's terrified. Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. That's telling you that he recognizes that it's God now because no one can see God and live. He's terrified at this, terrified. 
thinking he's going to die because no one can see God and live in verse 23. But the Lord says to him, now he's not there visually, but he's there audibly. And he says to him, peace be to you. Do not fear. You're not going to die. He just is going to give him a big assignment here to do this. So, so he built an altar. He was just overwhelmed with awe that it was God, and it truly was. He was going to do this. He was going to rescue the people, and he was going to be an important part of that. So he builds an altar there, and he names the altar, The Lord is Peace. The Lord is Peace, that he gave peace to him and called his heart out. It's interesting that many times when God's going to use us in big ways, he gets us to a point where we're at peace, we're, we're connected with him, we've repented of sins, we've been worshiping him, we're good, and then he gets us ready and he sends us out to do battle. He never leaves us in this, I mean, he, he keeps the peace, but he leads us into battle. We're learning the art of war. Remember that? We're learning the art of war. We're not in heaven yet, ladies. We're in a war zone. So he brings his peace, and he's going to lead him out to war. So this is the beginning of Gideon's ministry, and he gives him a job to do. What's he got to do? He tells him to go home and clean up his old household. Put your household in order before I really send you out. So he's got the first little assignment to battle. He immediately goes to serve God. In verse 25 and 27, God gives him the instructions what he's going to do. In his father's house, he needs to tear down the idols that are in there. The Asherah. Asherah is an old, very old false god idol. Satan's been using Asherah for since before Abraham. This goes way back. Abraham in the land of Ur may have even worshipped Asherah. Asherah is the mother earth. Asherah is the wife of El, the supreme god. So this is a big deal here. This is a pretty powerful god that sovereign god the number one god is telling gideon to go and destroy gideon's he's doing it but he's a little apprehension because he does it at night right he's a little bit scared there get some buddies to go do that um he gets the two bulls that the lord told him to get to sacrifice um after he destroys this idol um Burns it down, knocks it down, gets rid of all of it. Sin offering and the offering of consecration were what the two bulls were for. I'm surprised it didn't smell the meat cooking or something, you know? Didn't you think about that? But anyways, they wake up in the morning, there's huge controversy. This is a bad deal. The people are really nervous because, oh no, oh no, God... Uh, the one supreme God, the L, is going to be so mad at us. How could you possibly do this? Who has done this? Joaz, he's asking who's done it. Well, they find out that it's, you know, Joaz's son, Gideon. And in verse 30 and 32, they um, are telling him, send him out here. 
Bring him out here. We need to kill him now because he's broken down the altar. These people have strayed so far from God that they're willing to kill for the honor of some stupid idol. That's how far they have drifted with this. Bring your son out here. Let us kill it. Let us satisfy it. And Joaz, in his good wisdom and his logic, says, you know what? If, if you know, Baal is, is offended by this, then let Baal contend with Gideon. Let him, you know, have it out with him. So maybe Joash was kind of a half-hearted, you know, wasn't really sure what's going on and had some belief in the one true God like Gideon had. But anyways, nothing happens to Gideon, right? Instead, they give him a new name, Jerubbabel, which means it's a, um, the man against whom Baal is to strive and contend. And it was a title of honor. So this first battle, this first um, assignment, that God called Gideon to do, he had success because the enemy was harmless. Nothing happened to Gideon. He got a new name, a new title that was very honorable. So he's, God is starting to work through Gideon. Verses 33 and 36 now. They're going to get ready for battle. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and everything, they came down east to uh, of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. And they camped in a valley where the, all the Israelites could see them down there. And Gideon, the spirit of the Lord was on him, clothed him, and he sounds the trumpet and all the people are going to follow him now because you know what? Wow, God's behind him. He did this to that Baal altar and nothing happened to him. This is wonderful. So they're going to follow him down. They call him out, and all these people come down, and they meet him down there, and they're ready to go. They have about 32,000 men that follow him down there. Okay? They all get down there. Some of them start seeing what they're up against, the 100,000-plus over there, the enemy. And probably some of them are secretly thinking, I don't know what we got ourselves into here. Let's see how this plays out. And Gideon gets a little bit worried about that too. He sees all this, all these men are here, and all of a sudden this guy that was, you know, threshing weed in a hole is standing there with all these people behind him and all these three times more people out there to go to fight wondering what's going to happen. So Gideon... Ask for a sign. Okay, this is another sign. And he asks for it. And we all know the story. He puts the fleece out. You know, God, do this and do that and whatever. And God says, okay. And that happened. And I bet you Gideon didn't expect it to happen. I wonder secretly if Gideon didn't want, I hope he doesn't do it. (laughs) I really hope everything's all wet out there. There he goes and he rings it out. So he, he, he's, he asked for another sign, and it happened again, the, what, what he asked for, the reverse of it, and, and he went. Um, God's long-suffering patience with us, um, he's just so gracious. Before being too critical of Gideon, because we're laughing because I think we can relate to it, we should consider the challenge that was ahead of him. 
many of us would probably immediately re- even f- refuse to call. I'm not going to do that. I'm the weakest of the weak. Forget it, God, whatever. So he had enough faith to go. And a little faith is so much better than no faith at all. Okay? So he heads on out there. Um, how did God, how can we really know the will of God? I wasn't going to zero in on this, but then when I was reading the commentary, the little extra thinking thing had the verses in there, Romans 12, 1 to 2, it brought it up. So I thought, well, it's probably a good thing just to touch on just briefly. How can we know the will of God? How do I, who should I marry? What should I do? Should I take this job? What, you know, all the time, choices, choices all the time. For things that aren't spe- spelled out in Scripture, like we know not to lie, we need no, not to cheat and steal and murder, I mean, the things that are so plain here. But those little things in life, like, you know, decisions on jobs and stuff, how can we really know that? Well, here's another little paradigm shift with it. We don't zero in on that specific decision. The bigger thing is found in Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be transformed by this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, by the test, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. That's how we're going to know what the will of God is, that it is good, acceptable, and perfect. We're going to know the will of God if we do what? If we are not conformed to this world, if we are renewed by our mind, and how do we get renewed by our mind? Through the word of God. Jesus said that in John 17 when he was praying in the garden. The sanctification, the renewing of their mind. Do it with your word. Wash them over with your word. But we're doing here in this Bible study, we're renewing our minds. We're not being transformed by the image of God. Why can't more people be in this room? (laughs) We need to study the word of God in some capacity. Privately or whatever, Bible study should be for the Christian like a top priority. This is where the instruction is. As we follow this and as we apply to this and we're drawing close to God, self-sacrificing, doing the things that the world's trying to get us to do, washing our minds so we don't buy into the lies. You know how many lies are out there these days? Men are not women. They're not getting pregnant. I'm sorry. Children don't have a choice on what what kind of sex they are. I'm sorry. It's getting to the point of ridiculousness, and the world's buying in on it, okay? So we have to renew our mind in the Word of God, and when we are obedient to this Word with what we know, all those other decisions will come into play, right? The big ones are what matter, the obedient ones, how we're walking with God, applying this, and then the little ones, job, move, whatever, do this, do that, buy that, hang wallpaper, not hang wallpaper, you know? Those things won't matter. They'll just be a natural, not a banging our head against the wall conflict When we get ourselves in a state of panic like that, that's sin. We start worrying to the extent of some of the things we we grapple with and we get frustrated and can't sleep at night for. That's not good. So, 
I hope it was worth pulling that out because the commentary pulled it out. So, and that brings us to the paradigm shift. The Christian life is not what we get from God. God, are you going to give me this job? Are you going to help me do this? I mean, are you going to do that or whatever? That's not what we're focused on. The Christian life is what we give to God, a life sacrificial, a living sacrifice. I'm going to honor you. I'm going to be joyful. I'm not going to, you know, get my cage rattled over silly things like this or having to wait in line for something or forgetting something. I'm not going to beat myself all the time. We get rattled all the time. And to stay grounded and to stay in his peace, communing with him, that's what's going to get us through. That's the Christian life. And he's going to lay everything out. He'll take care of us in a wonderful way, more wonderful than we could even come up with. All right, chapter 7. So we know that Gideon, Baal didn't kill Gideon, so he gets to go on and with what's happening here. He's got his signs now, um, and he's rallying the troops He's, he's, his, his um, enthusiasm is contagious. Jerubabil, his new name, that's Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring, and they could see down there in the valley, they could see them all down there in the valley. Well, some of them were real enthused, and others were getting pretty scared and wanted to go home. Um, and there were rumblings and stuff. And so, But that's okay, because God is going to pull the army down. Gideon had 32 men, and there were 135 Midianites down there. The odds weren't too good. People were getting scared. They could see the enemy, and they were getting scared, and they were being fearful. So God tells them, go ahead and send them home. If they want to go home, it's okay. We're not going to keep it against them. Just, just let them go home. And they would go. You going to go? Hey, Joe, you going to go? You going to stay? Uh, I think my wife's calling me. I'm going to go home. <laughs> So I got kids at home, or I got, you know, I'm sure many, many, many of them left. But it was okay. God let him go. Um, so he was left with a handful of men. Um, so we think now, Gideon's probably wondering, okay, we can probably still pull this off. Because aren't we people that look at our resources you know, we're going to look at the circumstances and look at what we have. Okay, I think, I think we can probably still pull this off here with what, what's left here. Um, um, but we'll see. And then God says, you still have too many. You still have too many men. When we do God's work, we've got to do God's work God's way. So God can get the glory. So often we do God's work our way. Secular rules, way things, churches are run like businesses, whatever. You know, we see it over and over. We need to do God's work in God's way so God gets the glory from this. Satan, his tactics are fear all the time. That's his big thing, fear. Fear is paralyzing. Perfect love casts out fear. And our confidence is in God. So now the army's too big. God asks 
tells um, Gideon to go ahead. I'm going to thin them out some more. And the test was they're going to go down and get a drink of water. They're going down and get a drink of water. And I can't even imagine drinking like a dog. I mean, if you really think about it, boy, lay on your belly and put your face in the water. I don't know. Um, I'd be like one of those pugs, you know, how they whatever, because we're not built like that. But I guess going down and and laying flat and getting down there like a dog and, and just putting your face in the water, that is very vulnerable, prone to attack. You're just self-consumed. Oh, water, 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 just self-consumed with the water. But if you're coming to it and you're on guard because you know you're in a war zone, right? And you, and you just kind of kneel down and you kind of get the water, you know, and you kind of do like this. That would take a long time, but, but you're still looking around. Those are the ones that God called because they were men that were still kind of more aware, more uh, vigilant of what's going on around them. Everybody else went home. So he's left with 300 men. 300 men. Now, God is seeing that Gideon is still nervous. Gideon doesn't ask for this next sign, but in verses 9 and 10, God knows that Gideon needs another little encouragement sign. So he sends him down. He says, if you're a little bit nervous, I want you to go down, arise and go down to the camp. And if you're really scared, go ahead and take Pura, your, your, your servant, with you and hear what's going on. God knows when we need that extra help. And so, obviously, he was afraid because he brings his servant with him, right? And they go down there. And lo and behold, what a coincidence, Right? This guy just happened to be there in this big camp where Gideon and his servant come up and he's telling him about this dream that he had. And lo and behold, it was a specific dream about this. Is God sovereign? He's got this. So he overhears this dream and the dream is interpreted um, as this barley meal thing rolls into the camp and everything. And for the sake of time, I'll just tell you, barley meal was the food for dogs and cattle. If you were eating barley bread, you didn't have any money. You were like the poor of the poor, okay? So that was, that's like, that meant that this barley was not a good thing. Only very poor people ate barley. So the interpretation of the dream was this. The enemy camp would be knocked over by a humble nobody. A nobody, an insignificant person named Gideon, was going to come through camp and the whole camp was going to be knocked over. So the enemy started to get very afraid of them. And he was named Gideon because they knew they were going to go up against Gideon, this least of the weakest clan of the Manasseh, they were going to happen. So... They get the strategy down. We know how it goes. He gets the, the, the jars and the light in the jar, and they get the trumpets, and Gideon's all gun-ho now. We've got this because they're afraid of us. I now know that the enemy's afraid of me. So they go on down there. They didn't really know maybe the Israelites' God, but they knew Gideon. That's why he says for the, um, what does he say, for the sword as Gideon and Yeah, the Lord and Gideon. He wasn't bragging about himself. He was just shouting that this is Gideon coming, the one that was in your dream, this barley loaf that's coming down there. And so they all 
sound asleep. It was a changing of the guard a little bit, so they're a little bit disoriented, and they wake up to clanging. I don't know about you. I don't like to be startled awake. You know, the, <laughs> this is a side note. The quickest thing that can get somebody out of bed is the sound of your dog throwing up. I mean, <laughs> quick, get him in the bathroom, right? <laughs> Where's he throwing up on the rug? <laughs> side note. But anyways, this breaking this glass and throwing, you know, the, all the lights, they were all around. They put them in a panic and they started attacking each other. And so he won that battle. He gets a name for himself. And all Gideon's men did was stand. They stood there and did this. Put on the full armor of God and what? Stand. Stand. Okay. So that was a big win-win, a big win-win. Let's wrap it up here in like negative two minutes. Because the enemy can be out there, but the enemy also is in our midst, in our, in our fellowship, and can be in us too. I'm going to fly through this last chapter here and say this. There was competition between the tribe of Manasseh and the tribe of Ephraim. They were um, Joseph's two sons that he had in Egypt, okay, and they got the double portion. And if we go back to Genesis 48, 17, um, where Jacob's giving his blessings, 48, 17, When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, and this displeased him, and he took his father's hand and he moved it over to Ephraim's head, okay? Because Ephraim was, to Ephraim's head, he, he moved it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father, this way, since this is the firstborn, put your right hand, put your right hand on his head. Okay, because um, Manasseh was the firstborn. And he says, no, no, my son, no. I know what I'm doing. I also shall be a, he shall be a people also that is great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So, Ephraim was the younger one, but he got the blessing. So we have in this story now a problem. Because when Gideon from the tribe of Manasseh brought troops together, he didn't ask the twin bro- the, the brother, not, they weren't twins, Ephraim's clan to come on down. And Ephraim also, because they got that blessing, they were the tribe of Ephraim also had the tabernacle, in Shiloh there. So they were a very important, very important, like top dog clan, tribe. And they knew it. And so Gideon now is making a name for himself and coming up in life because he's, you know, he's such a mighty warrior and stuff like that. Um, There's some tension there. So Ephraim's group comes down and says, why didn't you call us to be a part of this thing? You know, we're so important. We need to be in the initial thing. And Gideon just kind of strokes him and says, no, 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 who am I? You guys do such great things. Your grapes are better than our grapes and blah, blah, blah. And he's got it all going there. Um, Trying to de-escalate, you know, um, 
Maybe he gets credit for it by just turning away wrath. But anyways, this is the tension between these two groups of people. The Ephraimites wanted their own recognition. What can I get from God? What can I get? Not what can we do for God. Not it's a matter of, wow, this is great. You're there for the people and look what God's you know, doing and everything. It's like, no. Why weren't we involved in this? We need to be important. Own recognition. Okay? They go to battle. On the way, they get tired. They get hungry. They stop at these other places. Those people won't help them out. Why not? Where's the evidence that you're going to win this battle? I want to be on a winning team. I want my recognition and who I help to be on the winning team. Until you win, I'm not going to help you out. Again, own recognition. Lack of faith. Not getting in there and really helping. Um, so, I know it's terrible that he goes back and he kills them, but it's, it's, we pull out of that a matter of the seriousness of when we are asked to serve, God calls us to serve. We don't look at the outcome. We don't look at what kind of recognition. We don't look at what it's going to mean to us if we do this. Hey, this is going to be really good on my resume if I do this for God. Those things shouldn't matter. It's what we give for God. It's not what we get from God that matters here. Now, another little part, and then I'll let you go, is two of these bad guys, two of these kings, apparently killed Gideon's brothers. And Gideon was going to get revenge for that. And back then, that was okay to do that. So he calls them out in 18 and 21, Calls them out, and they confess. They say, yeah, we, we, we killed them and everything. Gideon asks his son to kill these two kings. And it says his son couldn't do it because he was too young. So I wonder, as we look at families, as we look at generations, we as older generation, the older need to take responsibility for the things that God requires us to do and not leave things done for the younger generation to clean up. I don't know. Do you like that? I mean, I really couldn't figure out what was going on with that, but asking this boy who was too young to do that and the, the bad guys even say, hey, you're the one, you do it, you, you can kill us. And it was really his job to do that. As parents, as grandparents, um, we need to not leave our younger generations with stuff that we should have done, I guess, if that makes sense, if you're not too fuzzy. And I don't know, I'm just kind of taking a jab at it. I could be completely off there. Um, but I know as I read something like that, and if it's something's my responsibility to make it right, and I don't make it right, but then I expect, you know, my grandkids, my kids to do it, I'm just passing it off. So, anyways, it's not a game changer. The end of the story here is Gideon doesn't end as well as he began here because the things that he did kind of went to his head. I'm just going to use my notes and not pull it out of here now because you should be familiar with this story. 
They ask him to be a king. No, I'm not going to be your king. God's your king. We're not going to do this. Now, it's only a couple hundred years shy of them asking for a king and, and Saul becoming their king. God was their king. Satan wants so much to usurp God's kingship, he's going to try and stick whoever he can in there to do that. But Gideon has the right answer. No, I'm not your king. I'm, not, I'm just God's your king, but, I, but I'd like to have some little trinkets or whatever. He collects all these trinkets. They're happy to give it to him, but he acquires quite a fortune here. What does he do with this stuff? He melts it down and makes it into an ephod, which was an apron that the high priests would wear. The high priests serve at the tabernacle. Where's the tabernacle? In Shiloh, where Ephraim hangs out. Competition, right? Okay, well, they've got that there, Ephraim. They got, don't you guys want to recognize, look who I am. I'm not the least of the least anymore. I'm going to get one of these things, and I'm going to hang it out at my house. Oh, self-recognition. Self-recognition. This became a snare to him and his family. It was a horrible spiral down. He has a son. He names Abimelech. Abimelech means my father, a king. Gideon starts acting like a king. He gets all these concubines, which means he has all these wives, which means he has all these children, which is a symbol of, I'm a great king. I have all this wealth. Look at the people I can take care of. That's what that was. So he didn't say he was a king, but he was acting like a king. Well, that was his downfall. Um, went from a th- threshing hole to, to this. Um, but his name is still in Hebrews 11 of that faith. His name is still there. Um, Pulling this out, the Christian life is not what we get from God. Because the things that we get from God, the blessings we get from God, if we don't keep it in check, they can become a snare to us. But the Christian life is what we give to God. A, A living sacrifice, a person that lives and breathes and demonstrates Jesus Christ to the world with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, living that out, that will demonstrate the perfect will of God, and he'll take care of everything else.